Well, if you would, look with me in Philippians chapter 3 in a very important text. He's setting up chapter 4. Paul's argument is just kind of woven throughout a letter. That's what makes it one of its challenges to teach it. But it's also in discerning that, that argument is, is where the glory lies as we come to recognize how deep the mind of God is. In chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 19 to 20, or 20 to 21, but we'll begin in verse 17 for context. The Apostle Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things, their citizenship is here, that's what he's saying. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let's pray. Father, what we long for and wait for reveals where our hope lies. And we're not good at what Paul is calling us to today. We are way too often characterized by those who set their mind on earthly things. We pray by the power of the word, as your spirit comes to glorify Christ in our midst, you would progressively deliver us from that hopeless mentality. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the South Pacific, there's a chain of... 80 islands that was formerly called the New Hebrides Islands. It's recently been changed to the Vanatua or Vanatu Islands in the early 80s. Until 1839, these islands had no Christian presence, just utter darkness. But in 1839, the London Missionary Society commissioned two missionaries, John Williams and James Harris. And they brought the gospel to these islands. Unfortunately and tragically, within minutes of getting off their ship, after they reached the shore, they were victimized by cannibals. They were only there just a few minutes before it happened. And so it became an infamous place to go do missions. Indeed, just 19 years later, there was, in 1858, a missionary, a Scottish missionary named John Patton, who determined that he and his his wife Mary were called to those islands to do missions. And one of his elders warned him about going. It was a man named Mr. Dixon. And he said to John Patton famously, you will be eaten by cannibals. Just matter of factly. 
And this was John Patton's response. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. There to be eaten by worms. If I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Now, I have read that story countless times. It stirs me. It challenges me every time I read it. Not only does Patton's testimony serve as an example of what a Christ follower looks like who is preparing for, as Paul calls it in chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 1, verse 6, or 10, the day of Christ... It also illustrates a a very crucial truth that we see from 1 John 3. I think this truth is sometimes overlooked, but I think it's crucial to our Christian walks. In 1 John 3, verse 2, the Apostle John writes, Beloved, we are God's children. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then he goes on and says, And everyone who has this hope purifies himself. Do you see that? Hoping in that day. Hoping in his return. Hoping in our glorification when he returns is a means of sanctification. It's a means of purification. In other words... Promises have power. And the Apostle Paul knows that. He lives that. But he also recognizes that of our fallen tendency to trust in false promises. Promises like the here and now, the circumstances, the people around us, our location can bring in the paradise that our hearts long for. A paradise that we lost in Adam at the fall. Our hearts are hardwired for that paradise. And there's this false promise that we can have it here. But then there's another false promise. That the broken things that we see, very evident everywhere around us, in our own hearts, can never be fixed. And false promises will lead either... To frustration or despair. Common reactions to our world. Frustration or despair. And that's why we need this text. It reminds us that our hope is not here. It's not in our circumstances. It's not in the human relationships around us. It's not in our location. Our hope is seated at the right hand of God. It's a king who resides in holy space and reigns in holy space, who reigns in a resurrection body, a body that's imperishable, the prototype, 
of the new heavens and the new earth. You get that? His body is the prototype of the new heavens and the new earth. Continuity, but also discontinuity. And that is where our hope resides. And when that hope is beheld, it will generate zeal for the things of God. Discontentment with earthly things. It will generate fuel to do, as he says in chapter 4, verse 1, to stand firm in the Lord. Remember, he's setting up chapter 4, verse 1 and following. And as we saw last week, the Christian's home is not here. It's heaven. Look with me in verse 20 again. We saw this last week. He speaks of those in verse 19 whose end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. He's describing every unbeliever. He's describing you and I before we were converted to Christ. Before we were delivered from the power of darkness and transferred into the kingdom. This is an issue of kingdoms here. The earthly kingdom, which has a termination date, and the kingdom of God. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, in contrast to those whose minds are set on earthly things, which reflects a this-worldly citizenship. He says our citizenship is in heaven. But because it's more natural to us, all right, to think this-worldly, isn't it? It requires the Spirit to think in this way. And so it's more natural for us to think this worldly. We have to be constantly reminded and reoriented back to our true home. That's why the word of God and corporate worship is so vital. We have to be reminded of these things. Because of the noetic effects of sin, our memory is not as sharp as it should be. That's why he will say, for instance, in Colossians 3, the apostle Paul says, If then you've been raised with Christ... Set your mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We constantly have to be reminded of these things. And Paul is also giving them the reason why they should follow his example. As we saw in verse 17, verse 15. Because if there was anyone who understood the importance of setting our mind on the things above in heaven, it was the Apostle Paul. And out of that, he geared his life towards that reality. As we saw in chapter 3, verse 8, he said, I have suffered the loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own but that which comes through faith in Christ. That I may know him, verse 10, and the power of his resurrection. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. His his heart is set on that day. And therefore, verse 12, he presses on. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the recall of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I've been to two funerals in the last week. Considering 
that the death rate is 100%. Unless Christ returns, we're not getting out of here alive. To think otherwise is insane. It's absolute insanity. Now imagine someone investing their one and only life in accruing pink and blue Monopoly money and Monopoly property and finding their identity in Baltic Avenue. It's insane, isn't it? That's on the same sanity scale as one who sets his or her mind on earthly things, which is our default setting. It's our natural setting. Now, that's not to say we can't enjoy the created order. In fact, the Apostle Paul says those who advocate abstaining from creation are advocating a doctrine of demons, 1 Timothy 4. God has given us pleasure gates, our ability to see beautiful things, hear lovely sounds, taste wonderful food. God has given us pleasure gates to enjoy the created order, but not at the end as the end of itself in itself. Creation is not the end. Creation is a shadow glory that points us to ultimate glory. But the problem comes when the creation itself becomes the end for us, where we begin to serve and worship the creature rather than the creator. And Paul is seeking to restore that sanity. Listen to what Paul Tripp says in his book, Call Forever. The rising of the sun is meant to remind you of his faithfulness. He's speaking here of how creation is intended to enhance our worship of God, not our worship of ourselves. The crushing power of a devastating storm is designed to make you reflect on his power. The dependency of the baby is there to remind you of your constant need of God. The tender moment of human mercy is there to cause you to rest in his mercy. That five-course meal is an opportunity to be thankful for the spiritual food you need and that God graciously gives. The shifting stars in the night are created to remind you that Jesus is the true light. Every experience of love is meant to point you to his love. In other words, creation is not the ultimate glory. It's a shadow glory, an index finger pointing us to him. The problem arises when we begin to set our hearts and affections on the creation, on earthly things. Creation cannot deliver what our hearts are hardwired for. The glory of God in Christ. And so the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, is seeking to restore our sanity. That's what he's doing in this passage. As we saw last week, Philippi was a colony of Rome. 
Philippi is in Greece. It was in the region of Macedonia. Of course, Rome is in Italy. But this was a Roman colony, which indicates that they were to demonstrate the life and the glory of the Roman rule, the Caesar, and Roman culture. And Paul says that is a great analogy for the Christian. Because no matter what nation you live in, what nationality you are, what country you're in, that is not our ultimate identifying mark. We are a colony of heaven. Every tribe and tongue. And when we gather every tribe and tongue, we do not worship or celebrate the country where we're from even though we may be very grateful for that country. We represent another king. We worship another emperor. And we are to reflect the glory of that emperor, that king, of that culture, wherever we might be. And this requires remembering at least three things about this notion of citizenship. First of all, we're aliens. Alicia Smith is in London serving right now as a missionary. But she's still a citizen of the United States in London. We are here for a short time. Paul wants to remind us that our identity is not in the United States. We love the United States. But our identity is in another city, another state, another country, another world. 1 Peter 2 describes us as sojourners... And exiles. We are to be in this world, but not of this world. Like a ship. A ship was created for the ocean. It was created for the water. The ship is to be in the water, delivering people through that water. But God help us if the water gets into the ship. Secondly, we have all the rights and privileges that belong to that city. But much of what our hearts long for will not be fulfilled until we see the consummation of that city. That's part of the groaning that Paul speaks of in Romans 8. We have a down payment, the Spirit of God, who creates in us longings for the fullness of that city. The problem arises when we try to fill that longing with this city, this world. Lewis said that if we find in our hearts longings that nothing in this created order can fulfill, that signals that we were created for another world. Thirdly, we have a sure hope. And that brings us to the second part of this passage. The Christian's home is heaven, where the king is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he rules here by his Spirit, giving us just first fruits of the benefits of citizenship. But in verses 20b to 21, we see the Christian's ultimate hope, which is glory, glorification. Look with me in the second part of verse 20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What we are waiting on reveals where our hope is. 
Most of us are waiting on our circumstances to change. And Paul, who's writing from a prison, says, essentially, when your citizenship is in another place, your circumstances really are irrelevant in the scheme of things. What Paul is waiting on is not to get out of prison. Isn't that interesting? He's been chained to a an imperial guard and has never been more than 18 inches away from a, an imperial guard for two years and he's not waiting to get bail. He says, we are waiting a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Now he uses four names here to describe the Messiah and each is intentional. This is where Paul gets political. He doesn't see politics and government, earthly government, as the ground of his hope. He polemicizes against politics and government. Because the name Savior and Lord were used of the emperor. The Roman emperor. Let's look at these names quickly. He says, first of all, this Messiah is a Savior. Which means... He has come and will come to deliver us from danger. What is the danger? Well, the kingdom of darkness, ruled by the serpent whose head will be crushed. And in that sense, he's already delivered us. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, Colossians 1. And he has transferred us into the kingdom of the Son. He will deliver us ultimately from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. He will deliver us from ourselves. The second name here is Jesus. That means God saves. This was the name given to Joseph after, Je- after the, uh, the second person of the Godhead was conceived in the womb. Or the Godhead wasn't conceived, but... He put on human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And his name Jesus means God will save. God saves. And that's who Jesus is. He is fully God, fully man. And he came to save us from our sins. The name Christ here means the anointed one. It's the word Messiah in the Old Testament. The one authorized and empowered from the line of David. To set the people free and to rule over them for their salvation. And the name Lord here. This is the name given to him in his exaltation upon his resurrection from the grave. His ascension to the right hand of the Father. Of course, he is eternally the Lord. But now he is the Lord as the triumphant God-man. Which means when the Lordship of Christ comes to bear, the covenantal presence of God comes to bear... Uh, The saving reign of God comes to bear and the authority of God comes to bear. In Philippi, the the emperor was considered to be the Lord and Savior. And Paul is telling heaven's citizens there's one greater. And that's why we don't put our hope in government. We don't put our hope in a political party. Yes, we vote. Much blood has been shed To give us our right to vote 
and make our voices known, but our hope is not in earthly governments. It's in this one who is the ultimate king. Paul is seeking to woo us. He's seeking to wean us by wooing us. But good news like this only makes sense in the light of bad news. Indeed, note the contrast. The end for those whose God is their belly, who make themselves enemies of the cross, their end is destruction. Paul says, but we, we wait a Savior. And don't miss what Paul is doing. Yes, the cross is the message of salvation. It's necessary for our salvation. On the cross, Jesus Christ took the wrath, took the judgment that we deserve. So that we don't have to take the wrath. We don't have to take the judgment. And in the resurrection, God demonstrated that the dead had been paid for those who would believe. And the cross is the means by which we live the Christian life. But for Paul, the hope of Jesus' return is also a crucial motivating factor for the Christian life. Of course, you see that throughout the New Testament. We see it in the book of the Revelation. We see it with his friend Peter, his fellow apostle, who says in 1 Peter 1, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded, setting your hopes fully on the grace that will be revealed in the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's writing to people who are suffering persecution. And Peter is saying, the way you persevere in the treasuring of Christ in the midst of the pain is you set your hope fully on the grace that is coming in the revelation of Christ. Paul and Peter and John and all the apostles would say that if you are not homesick for your true home, then you will be vulnerable to worldliness. You will begin to believe that creation can give you something that will endure. And this is a challenge to us in the affluent West. Many of you have traveled overseas on mission trips and many of you have gone to to developing countries. In many of these developing countries, the Christians there, they live for the return of Christ. Because their circumstances compared to ours are horrid. They're reminded every day of the curse on creation. And so they live, they long for his return. But that's a hard thing to do in our country. Where, yes, the curse on creation is just as evident as it is in any developing country. But the curse has been covered with masking agents. Like health and wealth and entertainment. But we have to learn to think like the Apostle Paul. Or... Our hopes will be built on false promises. 
If we don't learn how to think and long for the things that the Apostle Paul longs for and tells us to long for, our hopes will be built on false promises. And that's why you live in a state of frustration or despair or both. And we have a greater hope than any false promise can offer. Notice in verse 21. He has spoken about the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In other words, there will be a great eschatological reversal. End time reversal that has already taken place in one person. It's already happened in the resurrection of Christ. Where the perishable was swallowed up by the imperishable. That's new creation language. Where the the mortal was swallowed up by immortality. That is new creation language. Before Jesus was crucified, he had the capacity to die. Because he had a body like ours. Not a sin nature like ours, but a body like ours. That was subject to sickness and pain And thirst and hunger. For 30 years he had the capacity to die. But when he was raised from the grave. The perishable was swallowed up by the imperishable. And that Paul says is our future. Our transformation at Christ's return. Will be the eschatological wrap up. That's the hope. Think about this. Don't overlook this. Our body of the future, he says, will be like his glorious body. Interestingly, this word glorious is the same word that's used in chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 19. Where it speaks of those who glory in their shame, which is no glory. In other words, contrary to those who glory in their shame, which is no glory at all. We too have a glory, but it's a glory that will not pass away. Where our present earthly existence is transformed into the existence of Jesus' own glory. And this is good news for those who mourn. Good news for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's boring and irrelevant to those who are comfortable in the city of man. Our lowly bodies that he speaks of here are our bodies of humiliation, some translations. It represents not just the physical body. It certainly does that. It represents our disposition to sin, our actual sins that we commit, and all the effects of sin... In this present creation. Including tsunamis, tornadoes, hurricanes, famines, and brush fires. And Paul says one day. All of that's going to be transformed. And he's not speaking of the fact that everybody will be saved in that day. 
This is not universalism. There will be a, a large group of people who refuse to bow the knee. And they will be judged. That will be part of the transformation as well. Because evil will be eradicated in judgment. He's speaking here to believers. Our lowly bodies. Man, I look forward to that day. Our lowly bodies are reflected when we fail to control our tongue, our lust, our laziness that keeps us out of bed too late at night and in bed too late in the morning. Where we fail to to subdue that rebellious, weak flesh which wars against the Spirit's desires for our life, be transformed. And not only that, our physical bodies, that we know as we get older, one of the means of grace for us is age. Because as we age, it reminds us, man, we're mortal. When I was 20 years old, I felt like I could do anything physically. But not at 50. My body is weakening, and yours is too. Your eyesight is weakening. When I first started pastoring you, there were no glasses. This is my second set since I started pastoring. Our hearing begins to weaken. Our mental capacities, our health. Paul says, all of this will be transformed. Why get so frustrated? With this present age. Why get so discouraged? Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 35 to 49. will be a great passage. We won't look at it for time's sake. He describes this transformation. As the continuation of our personal identity. But in the midst of radical alteration. It was Jesus' body that was raised from the grave. And it will be yours. There will be the continuation of your personal identity. But there will be a radical alteration. Think about this. When Jesus was raised, none of the disciples recognized him. You ever thought about that? The ones who spent three years with him did not recognize him. Why is that? Well, it was his body. But remember, Romans 8 tells us he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Does not mean he had a sin nature. But it does mean he had a body that was under the curse of sin like ours. In other words, when he was 30, he looked 30. He had aged. He was tested in all points, which means he had colds and flus. He thirsted, he hungered, he would get fatigued. And ultimately, he died. But when he was raised, all the effects of this fallen world had been reversed. In that resurrection moment, that's our future. 1 Corinthians 15 uses the imagery of a seed that, that is growing to full flower. Now you think about a seed. 
When you first look at a seed at face value, it looks unimpressive. It looks unpromising. But it grows to glory. It's destined for glory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just as we were born as the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we will be born into the image of the man of heaven. That is our future. No matter how difficult your circumstances and the people around you are. John or J. Murray Harris says this in his book, Raised Immortal. Paul is saying that, the, that in place of an earthly body that's always characterized by physical decay, indignity, and weakness, the resurrected believer will have a heavenly body that's incapable of deterioration, beautiful in form and appearance, and with limitless energy and perfect health. Once he experiences a resurrection transformation, man will know perennial rejuvenation since he will have a perfect vehicle for God's deathless spirit. What's Paul doing here? Again, there's power in the promises. There's power in the promises. We have a glorious future which no immediate gratification in this world can compare. Of course, there is this common objection. Well, what about the bodies of these believers that have been destroyed by fire? And in the early days, Christians were often thrown to the lions. So think about this. A a Christian is thrown to the lions. Maybe five lions eat that Christian. Eat his or her body. And then those lions die. And 50 vultures eat those five lions. How can a body be raised when it's spread out like that? Paul says, I'm glad you asked. Jesus will do this, notice, last part of verse 21, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our Savior, our Lord, our Christ is omnipotent. In other words, the same power by which Jesus reverses the curse And brings the entire universe in subjection to him. Is able to raise up every body for resurrection. And interesting, this language of subjection. Subjecting all things. If you know your Bible, where does that come from? Psalm 8 verse 6. Which refers to humanity as God created us to be as his vice regents. We were given dominion over the created order. To rule and to reign as God's vice regents. And we lost our way. We went AWOL and began to build Babel towers instead. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus is restoring our vocation. And that reality is a call. It's a motivation for action and joy. Listen to the Apostle Peter. 
2 Peter 3.13, But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. Therefore, beloved, since you were waiting for these, He's assuming you're waiting for that, not for your circumstances to change. Since you're waiting for these, be diligent. Be diligent. Paul and Peter, Apostle John in Revelation, assume that's where our hopes lie. And that will be our fuel, our motivating fuel. And remember the broader context. Paul says that he yearns for them with the very affections of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 8. He prays that their love would increase. Chapter 1, verse 9. He's preparing them for the day of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 10. He wants them to be light in darkness. Chapter 2, verse 15. And he wants them to be able to say with John Patton. If I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus. It will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. That's Paul's goal. That's the Spirit's goal. And that is my prayer for all of us. That we will learn more and more what it means to wait for that day. But we have a down payment. The Holy Spirit. The proof positive that our citizenship is in heaven. Let's pray. Father of mercy, we thank you for this passage. Father, we, we live way too often insane lives. As if this here and now is all there will be. God, deliver us from that. That way of thinking. I pray that every believer here at Fisherville would progressively learn to set their hopes on the glory that we will, will, will be revealed in that day when our Christ returns in full regalia, full glory. And Father, may that inform the way we do life. Where we get so easily frustrated. We get so easily discouraged. And we so easily despair. Because we're looking for paradise here. And paradise is to come. It's not here. But we have a down payment of paradise. Your precious Holy Spirit. So teach us to walk in the filling of your spirit so that even in this present world, we can be loving and joyful and have peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and self-control. All the fruit of the age to come. And Father, if there's anyone here today that's never trusted in Christ we have seen those four realities about him. He is the Savior. He is Jesus who came to save people. He is the Christ. He is Lord. I pray that you would remove the veil from their eyes today. That they may behold him as Lord and Savior. 
that they could recognize that they are sinner. And there's coming a day of consummation when sinners will be judged. But that you imputed the sin of every believer unto the Christ. And he took the judgment for it. And if they would just trust Christ today, their sins would be forgiven. Their status would be changed. And they would become citizens of heaven. We pray today would be the day of salvation. And I pray, Lord, they would feel comfortable coming to speak to me about these issues. And we ask these things in the name of our Christ. Amen. As we stand and as we sing.